Today, Pro Se is brought to you by Zyra.com. If you're looking for new clients, check out Zyra.com, where clients find, book, and meet with lawyers every day. There's no subscription fee to join. Sign up simple, and it takes less than 10 minutes. Zyra.com lets clients find you, allowing you to spend more time on billable tasks and growing your business. That's Zyra.com, X-I-R-A.com. Before we head into Pro Se, we also have some news for you about one of our sister shows, The Term. That's our Supreme Court podcast, and it comes back next week for the second season of the show. Hosts Natalie Rodriguez and Jimmy Hoover are going to take you through Supreme Court law clerks and some gender parity issues facing that group. And then the following week, they're going to give you a big preview of the entire Supreme Court term. They're going to get you all set up with every case you need to be watching, the big things to have on your radar. So you're going to be ready when oral arguments start in October. Don't miss out. Check out the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search for Law 360 and The Term. Now on to Pro Se. Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, guys. Uh, I'm excited for the show today. Me too. Um, We've got a good one where a little later on in the show, we talk to Suzanne Moniak, who's our immigration expert here at Law 360, and she walks through a Ninth Circuit case that um, could result in the deportation of about 400,000 immigrants from the country. It's it's an interesting one to unpack with her. That's very serious, and it was really good talk uh, with Suzanne, and we've got some other interesting stories. At the end of the show, uh, we are going to talk about the uh, bankruptcy exploits of Chuck E. Cheese. Charles so Cheese. Charles Edmund Cheese the third, uh, or is... <laughs> As Bill said yesterday, he's known in, Ita- in, in, in Italy, Carlo Formaggio. Is that what you said? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Great. That's, uh, <laughs> Love that, guys. Uh, anyway, Love that's, that. a, that's, a, that's a really fun story. But we do have some interesting stuff to get to. Uh, and I think, Bill, we've got some uh, some election news that actually has to do not with politics, but with uh, the task of actually voting. Yeah, I mean, the election is two months away. So uh, we're starting to get into that mode of talking about these kind of things. I, I don't think anyone... Would be shocked if uh, before the end of the year is out, we talk a lot more about uh, voting and lawsuits involving the election yes, and everything else. Yes. But um, don't step on future pro se's. But yes, <laughs> you're 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 probably right. We got a big ruling this week from the 11th Circuit. The appeals court ruled that Florida uh, didn't violate the U.S. Constitution when it passed a law requiring former felons to pay all of their outstanding fines before they are uh, re-enfranchised, before they're allowed to vote again. Um, uh, the court overturned a ruling that had said that that requirement, that had struck down that requirement. Um, the, a, a lower court had ruled that it was an illegal uh, pay-to-vote system, um, but the 11th Circuit this week uh, overturned that ruling. Wow. I mean, that doesn't sound great on the face of it when you have an argument over whether or not it's a pay-to-vote scenario but what are the actual facts here what happened so for years florida banned all ex-convicts from voting at all uh but in 2018 i think we talked about it on the show voters in the state passed by a huge majority uh an amendment to the state's constitution allowing most former felons to vote it was you know murder and a few other things weren't covered by it but uh the measure was praised at the time by voting rights advocates, civil rights advocates. But very quickly, it was 
hemmed in by the state's uh, Republican-controlled legislature. The uh, state lawmakers passed a measure that was signed last year by Governor Ron DeSantis uh, requiring former felons to settle all financial obligations involving involved with their conviction before they were then able to vote again. Uh, court fees, fines, uh, aspects of their conviction that involved money. Um, yeah. So that's sort of a technical way of phrasing it, but I thought one way to sort of frame it was, um, you know, one estimate said that there's something like 750,000 former felons in the state of Florida that owe uh, some kind of payment con- connected to their conviction. So it's a very wow. big restriction. Mm-hmm. It's a very big sort of limitation on that amendment that was passed back in 2018. Even before we get to the litigation, which is interesting, I, I just, this is a very sort of interesting peek into when, you know, like referendums pass by public vote, but then yeah. like the legislatures have to have to implement them. And they, like you, you said they hemmed it in, which I think is a nice way to put it. Yeah. Um, of putting these just, you know, squeeze these little sort of provisions, uh, provisos into the law. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, I can imagine there was a wave of litigation uh, when this hit the books, which is why we're talking about it now. Let's uh, walk us through some of those. Yeah, the ACLU and other similar groups organized cases brought by former felons who would be uh, impacted by this, arguing that the law uh, violated the U.S. Constitution. They said that it mm-hmm. violated the um, the Fourteenth Amendment, which guarantees uh, equal protection, basically barring people uh, you know who couldn't afford to pay from yeah. voting. Um, they also argued that it violated the Twenty Fourth Amendment, which was passed in nineteen sixty four. It was part of the whole bucket of civil rights uh, movement legislation and amendments. Um, it bans states from imposing poll taxes uh, for the right to vote, which yeah. uh, anyone who's familiar with U.S. history in the 20th century, that, that was a big part of the Jim Crow segregation laws in the South. So um, uh, they said that this violated that by imposing that kind of payment uh, before you were able to vote. Um, in May, a federal judge ruled that uh, sort of greenlit both of those arguments, ruling that the 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 statute had violated both of those amendments to the U.S. Constitution. The quote from that ruling: "This pay-to-vote system would be universally decried as unconstitutional, but for one thing: each citizen at issue was convicted at some point in the past of a felony offense. A state may disenfranchise felons and impose conditions on their reenfranchisement, but the conditions must pass constitutional scrutiny." Whatever might be said of the ra- of a rationally constructed system, this one falls short in substantial respects. So the court said, no, you can't put this in place. They, they issued a, a sort of a, a system for how, uh, you know, sort of a court imposed system for how the state should administer this to try yeah. to uh, mitigate some of the constitutional harms. And obviously, uh, the state of Florida appealed to the 11th Circuit. Okay, well, that's where you started us off with this segment, that the 11th Circuit took a different stance here. What happened at the appellate level? So it had already been up to the appellate court earlier in the case. It went up before a panel. I just wanted to say that because this ruling this week was by the full en banc 11th ah. Circuit. Mm-hmm. It's the full court. Obviously, they have more power to uh, you know, overturn previous precedents that were issued by by panels. And And what they did this week was they said, they looked at this law through a, a more deferential lens than than the earlier rulings. They had said instead of uh, the the instead of the the so called you know heightened scrutiny that uh, that these challengers would have preferred, they used to look at it, which is what courts do when they look at questions of fundamental rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, the court instead looked really just at whether or not Florida had a so called rational basis for passing this law. It's a much easier test to pass. Yeah. And, 
Bill, the- every law student listening to you right now loves that you just explained that. It's on every <laughs> law school exam ever. Which which level of scrutiny is the court using? That's exactly. Great. Yeah. Um, but so the, the the court said under that more deferential test, the provision did not violate the Fourteenth Amendment because the state had what the court determined was a rational basis. That and that was wanting to only reenfranchise people who had fully completed their sentences. They said, mm-hmm. this isn't about whether or not you have money or whatever. It's about just completing your sentence, regardless of anything else, and we're going to give you the vote back for that. And what they basically said was, if a, you know, if a state is allowed to entirely ban a former felon from voting, mm-hmm. then surely they must be able to pick and choose when they re-enfranchise based on how much of a sentence has been completed and all that kind of stuff. They also said that uh, that it didn't violate the 24th Amendment, um, the, the, the poll tax question. They said that the money owed here from court fees and everything else was simply not the kind of tax that was mm-hmm. uh, implicated by the 24th Amendment. So the thing about the en banc cases, of course, is that, like you said, it gets heard by the full panel. And that, of course, gives everybody a chance to dissent or write their own or con- concurrence if they want. And with a with an issue that like cuts to, you know, sort of very core democratic rights here, I would imagine we got I, I would imagine there was an interesting uh, uh, bit of writing on on the other side. Yeah, I mean, you said it right, right, that that it, when you're dealing with very weighty questions of, yeah. uh, you know, of your your right to vote, but also dealing with, um, you know, legislation that came out of the civil rights movement. It's yeah. it's uh, the very stakesy questions that the court was ruling on and mostly um, affecting people of color, obviously. Yeah. Yes, and, yes. and we got a we got a dissent here that was um, uh I think, you know, responding to those things that that it was a 103 page uh, fairly scathing dissent from Judge Adalberto Jordan and uh, three other judges uh, on the 11th Circuit. And they took issue with really every aspect of the ruling. I mentioned before sort of that granular question, but very crucial question of the 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 uh, the deference that the court was was affording, the lens that they were look they were reviewing this through, and they they said that was wrong. But even under this more deferential thing, you should have you should have uh, still ruled that this violated the constitution. Really went through and and picked apart everything in the majority ruling. Um, it, they ended with with a very stinging critique of not so much any individual legal aspect, but more the overarching uh, you know situation here that, yeah. that you had a court. Uh, and a legislature seemingly, um, to a certain extent, going against what the the amendment in in uh, 2018 had really been about. Mm-hmm. Quote: If this is not a nullification of the will of the electorate, I don't know what would be. And it is a dream deferred for the men and women who, having paid their debt to society to the extent of their capacity, often by having served lengthy prison sentences and periods under supervision, are deprived of the franchise that that amendment four promised to automatically restore. Um, so, uh, it's, it's certainly a, a big blow for voting rights advocates. Um, uh, Florida is, is always a very close state in, yes. in, yeah. uh, you know, left, right politics. So, uh, any sort of question of, of who gets to vote is, is obviously a huge issue. Um, and, uh, we, we will see if this goes to the Supreme court. It, it is obviously done at the 11th circuit because that was already an on bank yeah. ruling. Um, we'll see if anything else comes from this. So the next story, I will move from Florida up to New York, and I just want to raise something that I'm sure everybody who's listening has heard a time or two before. You often hear the phrase, 
lawyers make the worst clients. And it's like something of a cliche, I think. But it's a case going on in New York right now that is really kind of giving that some legs. And we are talking today about a man named David Joffe. And he was a former associate at King & Spaulding. And he is suing the firm for wrongful termination. Uh, We'll talk about why in a second. Um, But his case against the firm has kind of hit the skids because Joffe has had um, a pretty nasty falling out with his legal team. His lawyers basically left the case about um, uh, a year after he filed the suit. And last week, the Second Circuit basically ruled that Joffe has been such a headache to his lawyers uh, that his lawyers who have left the case will be entitled to a portion of any winnings that he ultimately gets from King and Spaulding. They've got wow. a lean on his potential winnings if if he ever uh, extracts any from from the firm. Okay. I mean, Pro Se has a long history, especially in our offbeat section of talking about various uh, <laughs> lawyers who've gotten themselves in hot water for a lot of things. If and lawyers I, are suing lawyers, we are there. We're there. I mean, please. We, we um, are all we are about, there for We're you. all about that mess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I don't think we've really talked about somebody who's been such a pain in some way that there's this kind of lean situation. It's really unusual. So like, yeah. what what's the what are the details here? So uh, I actually looked this up. I, I was like, this sounded familiar to me. We talked about this guy on episode 14, almost uh, more, more wow. than three more than three years ago, right when he right right when he first sued. But anyway, wow. just to reset, uh, Joffe sued King and Spalding in 2017. He claimed that he was fired after he went to the firm's leadership to basically blow the whistle on two senior partners who he said were lying in open court while working uh, on a case. For the Chinese company ZTE. So he says he goes to the firm's leadership and said these guys are committing like egregious ethical breaches mm-hmm. and then he's fired for it. That's that that's that's what he says. The firm has denied this. He's saying he was fired. They've offered a number of explanations. His business had dried up. He got a bad performance review. Uh, they were supposed to go to trial this year. It's been bumped to next year because of covid. But that is secondary because now there's a new dispute that uh, that has cropped up between Joffe and the attorney that he hired to pursue this case against King and Spaulding. So like I say, about a year after Joffe sued, his lawyer, who is a man named Andrew Moskowitz of Jabberbaum Wurgaft, uh, he dropped out of the suit and basically just said that Joffe was an, an absolute nightmare of a client. He was hostile. He was indignant. Most importantly, he was tardy with payments. Um, so when 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 they filed, when when Moskowitz filed with the court saying, "Hey, we're going to leave," he also asked to grant a lien. Um, uh, you know, sort of sort of a claiming dibs on some portion of the winnings that Joffe would ultimately get. This is to recoup payments he never made to the team, even though they've basically been forced off the case by his behavior. The district court said, yeah, we're good with that. And they put the lien on. They said that Moskowitz had, quote, good cause to withdraw based on Joffe being an unreasonably difficult client who repeatedly fired off demeaning remarks, failed to make timely payments, questioned JW's competence, disagreed on strategy while doggedly micromanaging the case, and dangled termination and dangled termination as a threat to win arguments. So he would basically, <laughs> you know, he's a lawyer. So, of course, he's, right. he has these issues with how these lawyers are pursuing this case against a bunch of other lawyers. Doggedly so, micromanaging the case. I know. Yeah, it's a, it's Ooh, a good turn of phrase there. Tough. So yeah, I mean, I mean he basically was saying like he he would always tell them like, "Hey, if you don't if you don't pursue the case the way I say, you're going to be fired." And eventually they were like, "Well, we'll just leave." 
I mean, this must happen from time to time, maybe not to this extent, but the idea that lawyers would be a tough client to take on makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, Alex, your wife is a doctor. I would imagine this would apply there, too. You probably don't want to treat another physician. Oh, yeah, because they get a lot of pushback. uh, a buddy of mine is uh, a chef at a nice restaurant, and I was I was talking to him the other day about it's it's weird to go to restaurants with him because oh, he, yeah. he's like judging the uh, everybody that you're there with. So well, especially yeah. if you pick the restaurant, you're exactly. really on the hook. Um, so anyway, um, that was the district court's finding, um, and you know there there is there is it is rare, but there is case law that's like if. If attorneys have good cause to leave a case because a client is being unreasonable, they can put a lien on it. So, like, it's rare, but it is, but it is a thing. Um, and the the uh, there was a magistrate judge who approved it, and the district court, like I just said. And then last week, Joffe just went and got smacked around by the Second Circuit. <laughs> um, they they you know all every court who has ruled on this now, every judge has basically said he's this guy is like a huge pain in the ass, and he <laughs> and he drove his lawyers to drop them, and now they are entitled to the winnings. Um, Second Circuit was mostly, it was a short, short order, just like six pages. And they were mostly deferential. They said, uh, just pretty flatly, quote, the record confirms that Joffe was indeed an unreasonably difficult client. Um, but something else kind of, kind of, uh, jumped out at me because if you'll recall, this whole thing began with allegations of like ethical misconduct by lawyers and the court, um, the, the Second Circuit in ruling against Joffe last week basically admonished him for making what what they called misrepresentations in his briefs. He, he said that Moskowitz withdrew because they had a disagreement over a settlement. Um, and the appeals court said, that's just one factor in the breakdown of this relationship. And that you isolating that is just saying that's the only disagreement is pretty dishonest. They wrote, uh, and they kind of read him the riot act here, uh, quote, Candor to the court is a basic and important precept to ensuring integrity and functioning of the judicial process. We remind appellant that there is no excuse for making misrepresentations to the court, particularly given his experience as an attorney and officer of the court. So um, this one's got some pretty piping hot tea. I don't I don't even know what King and Spalding must be thinking now. They're just sitting around waiting for trial while he's having it out with his legal team. Uh, but uh, it's been eventful so far. We'll see where it goes. If you're looking for new clients, check out Zyra.com, where clients find, book, and meet with lawyers every day. Zyra.com. That's X-I-R-A.com. There is no subscription fee or cost to join. And sign up is simple. It takes less than 10 minutes. Zyra.com lets clients find you, allowing you to spend more time on billable tasks and growing your business. the Ninth Circuit decided the Trump administration has the authority to terminate temporary protected status for certain immigrants. The ruling paves the way for the deportation of about 400,000 people and could force the separation of thousands of mixed status families. Here to break down the ruling and what it all means is our immigration senior reporter, Suzanne Maniak. Welcome back to the show, Suzanne. Thank you for having me. Oh, man, this is a a really tough one to talk about. A lot of uh, people's lives in the balance here uh, with how this ruling was going to come out. And we'll get to the ruling. But first up, I just want you to help explain to the listeners, what is temporary protected status and who's covered by this program? 
Yes, give us a give us a TPS report, if you will. <laughs> so TPS is a humanitarian relief program that provides work permits and deportation protection to individuals from countries that have been designated by the U.S. government after some kind of crisis, so a natural disaster or a civil war, maybe. It's not an entry program, to be clear. Uh, once a country is designated for TPS, it only protects individuals who are already here. So it's basically our way in the U.S. of not deporting people back to countries that are really having a big disaster or struggling in some way. Exactly. So how did it end up at the middle of this legal drama? I mean, I think we, we, we've already, the, the Trump administration's sort of maneuverings in the immigration law space are well known by now. And this was another example of sort of a, a mass revocation of some other, you know, benefit, right? Can you explain sort of how we got to the stage of litigation? Yes. So um, back in Trump's first and second year in office, uh, the Trump administration announced that it would be revoking TPS protections for six countries, Nicaragua, Haiti, El Salvador, Sudan, Honduras, and Nepal. And this was huge because a lot of these countries have been designated for TPS for years or even decades. El Mm. Salvador, for instance, had been designated since 2001. So there were a lot of lawsuits um, Mm. essentially contesting the decision to revoke those protections. And what were they arguing? I mean, is it because like, did this take the form of the DACA thing where you're like, you just didn't give us enough notice or you can't do it through executive action? I mean, what were they arguing was like wrong with the way that they revoked it? Well, when the Trump administration announced that it was revoking these countries' designations, uh, officials essentially said that they were evaluating the specific conditions that had prompted the initial designation. So for El Salvador, that was an earthquake back in 2001. Mm -hmm. And the lawsuits that were filed claimed that this was an arbitrary change in practice because prior presidential administrations had considered intervening events or disasters that had occurred after the initial designation Mm -hmm. to consider a country's conditions as a whole when deciding whether or not to renew that status. Advocates also claimed that the decisions to end these protections were motivated by racism, winning to comments that President Trump has made about immigrants in the past. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of the immigration things we talk about on Per Se. I mean, a lot of the same allegations that, you know, maybe the reason they're giving isn't the full reason because Trump has tweeted or said certain things about various nations and immigrants on the whole. Um, So how did the court, the lower court, handle those arguments? Where did we land there? Well, a federal judge in California um, sided with the challengers and handed down a nationwide injunction that had preserved TPS for four of the countries at issue in this case um, Mm -hmm. for the last couple years or so while the case progressed through the courts. But we're having you on to talk about the Ninth Circuit decision, um, which I, we, Amber has already said uh, went the other way. Um, you know, they 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 said that the the administration does have the right to um, you know revoke these protections. Why did they depart from that? I know that a lot of this sort of boiled down to what is the executive's re- or what what is the reach of like the courts to review this action and stuff like that. I mean, what where did the Ninth Circuit come down? Right. So on Monday, the Ninth Circuit basically held that the Department of Homeland Security has full discretion to extend or terminate TPS for certain countries. And that, you know, the analysis behind the department's decision to revoke status in this case um, are basically off limits to the courts. They also Mm -hmm. were not persuaded by advocates' arguments that the terminations were motivated by racism because they found that they hadn't shown enough of a link between President Trump's statements and the Department of Homeland Security, which is what's ultimately in charge of terminating these extensions. Yeah, I feel like immigration has become so interesting even for people who maybe aren't immigration attorneys because it really tests the limits of what can uh, the executive branch do? Um, Where are their limits with a lot of these programs? And it sounds like with this one, they were like, 
no limits. You guys can create TPS. You can take TPS away. Exactly. It's a fully discretionary program is what they found. Well, let's talk about the impact a little bit. I mean, we've we've laid out some some top line numbers, but I think I, I think we want to sort of reemphasize those a little bit. I mean, roughly how many people are covered by this? What sort of what where does this leave them now? What what's 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 the scope of this of of, of this decision? So it's hundreds of thousands of people. There's about three hundred thousand directly implicated in this case, as well as around another hundred thousand who will be implicated in a related case. And there's also their American children. Um, immigrant mm-hmm. advocates have noted that there's about 270,000 U.S. citizen children who have a parent on TPS. And that's going to force parents to make really difficult decisions if they do end up losing their status and having to leave the country. Do they bring their children with them to a country that may not be safe? Or do they leave their kids behind in America and separate the family? And these American children have often never even visited these home countries we're talking about for their parent. I mean, they were born in America. It's what we talk about with these mixed status households. They generally wouldn't have visited um, since individuals on TPS cannot generally travel abroad. Yeah, it's a really it's a really tough spot for the family. So we can see why advocates and the immigrants themselves are very distressed about this. But it goes beyond just the direct impact there. What about, you know, a lot of these people have jobs, right? So what about businesses and where they're working? How's that uh, reaction been? Yeah, there could absolutely be a ripple effect in communities, especially those um, with a lot of TPS holders, California, for instance. Um, And 130,000 TPS holders, more or less, are essential workers who have been kind of keeping the economy going during the pandemic, including around 75,000 in food supply and processing industries, obviously um, very key. So, you know, and these are people who, like I said, have been here for years and years and years. A lot of these people came to the U.S. in the 90s. So they've put down roots in their communities. They've been at their jobs for a long time. Um, this absolutely will have an impact on those local economies if hundreds of thousands of people suddenly lose work authorization. Uh, I don't know if we've mentioned yet, it was a two to one decision. Um, uh, I, I know you wrote a little bit about the dissent. I mean, it was on it was, uh, again, on this question of whether or not the, the, the court can say anything about the discretionary nature uh, of this program. Um, what uh, what did the dissent say? And do we have a sense of where the case goes from here? Yeah, so one judge did dissent and said that they would have affirmed the lower court's injunction. Um, and that judge essentially said that they were not directly challenging the you know, Department of Homeland Security's off-limits reasoning, but that they were levying more of a collateral challenge to the way that the administration has allegedly changed the entire process behind deciding whether or not to extend mm-hmm. TPS. So yeah. there was a split. One judge did say that she would have granted it. And the advocates have already announced their intentions to request full court rehearing and U.S. Supreme Court review if necessary. Yeah, it seems like we're in for a long uh, additional fight here. I mean, as with a lot of the stuff you cover on your beat, Suzanne, it makes it to en banc sittings or the full high court eventually because they're really big issues, um, especially, like I said, of executive power. Um, But what else is going to happen? I know you said that there's the people directly impacted by this case, but there's some other countries that were covered by TPS that have um, separate suits? Are, are those people also in jeopardy? What's going on with them? Yeah, so there was a separate suit that was um, related to the ninth, the battle before the Ninth Circuit that's been on pause um, waiting for those results. So those people from Nepal and Honduras in that suit are likely to be affected by this order as well. And there's a number of other lawsuits challenging these terminations across the country. Uh, for instance, there's one brought on behalf of Haitians, um, that's currently pending before the Second Circuit, and they have yet to rule. So there's a possibility for a circuit split, which could make this issue even more ripe for a Supreme Court review. Or the Second Circuit could go the way of the Ninth, um, which would 
create a more of an well, uphill battle for advocates. So right now, I mean, we can't ignore the context of where the country is, too, just in terms of administration. We are inching toward a presidential election. Do we have any wiggle room here for the countries impacted directly by the suit? And remind me of which ones those were again. So the the countries directly impacted here are El Salvador, Haiti, Sudan, and Nicaragua. Okay, and there so absolutely is wiggle room. How soon did they all lose protection? Was it immediately when the Ninth Circuit uh, issued the ruling or is there a little time? Um, so for El Salvador, it's November 2021. And for the other countries, it's March 2021. So there is some time. This Nothing will happen before a presidential election. So in theory, if a Biden administration were to take over in January, there would be the opportunity for that administration to reinstate TPS for those countries, even if they lose on appeal. Wow. It seems like a lot still, even though we got a final decision from the Ninth Circuit, a lot still hanging in the air for these immigrants, more uncertainty um, for them, for their employers and for their families. Yeah. And 2021 will come faster than we think. Uh, Legal services providers have told me that they're essentially scrambling to meet with TPS clients to determine if there's any other immigration options available to them. Yeah, this is definitely going to be one to watch and really appreciate you breaking down this complicated issue for us. Thanks for coming on the show, Suzanne. Thanks again for having me. Our show is something offbeat. And Alex, you teased this a little earlier. We're talking about Chuck E. Cheese this week. Well, Chuck E. Cheese um, is sadly just one of the many victims of COVID-19. Um, they were, I don't know how great the I don't know how great a shape the business was in before that, but they filed for bankruptcy in June um, as nobody uh, was really in the mood to go to pizza arcades uh, and things Mechanical, of that nature. Rat performances things of that nature (laughs) that's correct um although i think the i mean they actually abandoned the animatronic show a couple years ago and that was really the death toll as far as i'm concerned did you ever listen to that uh (laughs) there's a i think slate's decoder ring podcast did a whole thing about the the background of chuck e cheese and how explosively (laughs) it it blew up back in the day and guys i i think just for table setting purposes i mean we haven't even really gotten to what's going on with chuck e cheese but i would like to disclose as a child, I never went to a Chuck E. Cheese. Oh, I went there a lot. They I had a lot, great. a lot, a lot of birthdays there. I think um, in hindsight, it's any business of that nature, like with the, with what we think about germs now. I I, <laughs> I say a hard. I mean, they were oh, not. Yeah. They were not clean places. Well, uh, and that's relevant to the story here. Not just that they had to close because of COVID, um, but like I said, they declared bankruptcy. Many many locations are still operating, and when that's the case, I mean, bankruptcy is complicated. But generally. When you're in bankruptcy, you have to ask the court for permission to spend money on just about anything. Um, And what they have asked the court for permission for this week is the permission to spend just over $2 million to destroy about 7 billion prize tickets, Chuck E. Cheese prize tickets that you redeem for prizes that have basically piled up in the supply chain so that they don't cycle through um, and and get out to to consumers. So that, again, it's going to cost two point three million dollars to destroy these tickets. So are you saying those tickets are just sitting in a vault somewhere? 
Uh, well, well, here's the thing. I, well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, they, they are in many of them are in storage. And if you're having trouble visualizing what seven billion tickets looked like, um, the company has helped, uh, has has, has uh, provided uh, in a in a court filing a good visual for this. They said these tickets would fill approximately 65 40 foot cargo shipping container. <laughs> what? Wow. Well, so here's the thing. They ordered most of these tickets. I mean, they ordered them in bulk, obviously, and they ordered a bunch of them before the pandemic because even right. the ones that are still operating now have moved away, like, you know, touching mm. paper yeah. tickets and redeeming them and giving them to people. This is like a germ factory. So they've moved the, the ones that are still operating have moved to an electronic system. Um, but they've asked permission. And the, and the reason that they're saying that they would do this is that if if they are circulated into the population, you know, they have to honor them. And the 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 tickets are worth about nine million dollars worth of prize merchandise. And this is how the heist movie begins. <laughs> this is what I'm this saying. I mean, yes, I was gonna say somewhere there Either. is a team of eight year olds who yeah. is being like we this are. This is gonna we, be a great ABC in. family movie, I'm telling or you. Or like an eight year old Warren Buffett who's just gonna buy these <laughs> tickets and sell them for us and redeem them and then yeah. sell all the products. This is I'll arbitrage. Either way. I mean, right. This is great this, either way. This is pure arbitrage. Uh but uh, if 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 you're like me and you wanted to crunch the numbers there, they said that about these 7 billion tickets could be redeemed for about $9 million worth of prize merchandise. That that comes out to about 0.0013 cents per ticket if you wanted to put a put a monetary value on Chuck E. Cheese. So, um, yeah, so they're asking for permission on that. The court hasn't ruled on that yet. I want to know, they don't actually say how they would destroy them. I don't know if they would be burnt or shredded. Ceremonially. Yeah, uh, yeah, with like sort of uh, incantations and, you know, whatever. Um, But yeah, I don't know. Uh, It's all playing out in Texas bankruptcy court. And like you say, Amber, I mean, if there are any enterprising, you know, preteens out there listening to this, uh, they're out there somewhere. These tickets. That's right. Uh, maybe find them. I don't know. Take them and 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 you know claim them for what they're worth. You got nine <laughs> mil waiting for you. <laughs> Alex, I love that you're ending the show by telling people to commit a crime. That's great for a legal podcast. Well, I'm well. Let's be more. I'm telling children to commit a crime, and sure, they have sure. so That's much deniability. Fun, they are just wayward youths. Their minds have been poisoned by the legal news podcast hosts of America. <laughs> so you know. Anyway, happy to help. Happy to do my uh, part. Well, let's end it there. Thanks yeah. for bringing that story, Alex. <laughs> Thank you. And thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, and our graphic designer, Chris Yates. Our guest this week was Suzanne Maniak and our contributing reporters, Emma Cueto and Carolina Bolado. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, it's really important for us if you leave us a written review where you're listening. Any podcast platform leaves five stars in that written review. It helps other people find us. If you want to read more about the things we've talked about today, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.